Good morning, everyone. Um, we haven't done this in a while. I know introverts recoil at it, but I'm an introvert. I'm going I'm to suck it up and deal with it. Why don't we stand, do a quick passing of the peace. Just say good morning, greet someone, say the peace of Christ be with you, and you can say the peace of Christ be with you. Very Anglican, that's part of my roots. <laughs> passing of the peace. You can greet each other with a holy kiss, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, nice to see you. Good to see you, man. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. A few housekeeping items, just uh, I want to get out of the way because they're, they're really, really important, but I want to get to them before I, I forget. Uh, on September 13th, so that's two Sundays from now, that's our kind of kickoff Sunday. And one of the things that uh, I'd like to do this year is um, we're going to be having kind of stations in the church that are stations of how you can get involved in different ministry areas and things this year. Those are going to be available throughout September, so 13th, 20th, and 20, uh, 27th, but I'm really going to be unpacking why it's so important to get involved uh, in a fresh and in a new way heading into the fall on the 13th, so I really encourage you to be here for that. Um, we are still looking for, uh, that's going to be uh, a Sunday to sign up for small groups. We're really excited. I'm getting more and more excited about launching kind of a new phase of small group ministry here, and what I'm going to be asking people to do is to sign up on that Sunday. Uh, I, last week an email went out Sunday before there was a little note in your bulletin saying we are looking for home group hosts and leaders and it's a little bit more helpful for, for me to know before the 13th if you are able to either lead a small group or to, to host one. Uh, that just makes my organization a little bit easier in the sense that the 13th becomes people who want to be involved. I already kind of know in general where some hosts and leaders would be and then I can uh, filter them through over the next few weeks because the first week of October is when we want to start kind of launch small groups in earnest. So if you're willing to host or to lead a small group, um, if you could email me, connect with me after church, phone me and just kind of let me know, give me a heads up, that would be awesome. And then uh, on the 13th and 20th and 27th, as we kind of unpack our vision for the year and what we're going to be focusing on this year, that's when anyone else's chance will be to kind of say, yeah, I think I'm actually going to sign up to be a part of small groups this year. Also, we need Sunday school teachers. I talked about that as well. Um, I don't really have a tremendously clear vision for our children's ministry yet, other than I want, it to be the, I want this church to be the best place for kids and young families. Uh, so that's my starting point. That's, I know it's pretty broad, but I want this to be, I want us to have the strongest Sunday school presence. I want uh, kids here to think of Sunday as the thing that they would, would be the last thing they would skip in terms, not, not just in the sense that it's fun, but it's just deeply meaningful on a lot of levels. And so um, if you want to be a part of that, even if you have no experience teaching Sunday school, there's, we're going to provide training this year. There's going to be ongoing support throughout the year. And so you're not going to kind of be thrown into the deep end and then like, thanks, and have a an, you know, class of 16 four-year-olds overwhelm you. Uh, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. So, but if you want to get involved in that, please, please let me know. And one last thing, next Sunday, 
This is a new tradition for me. I haven't done it for very many years, but uh, I actually stole it from another a pastor friend of mine in Hamilton. Uh, next Sunday is kind of Labor Day weekend. And what that person did was uh, at the end of the service, uh, um, she would uh, anoint her congregation. Um, she would just invite them forward and literally just take a little bit of oil and just anoint their foreheads as a way to say, uh, you are anointed in your sphere of labor, whether that's an accountant, engineer, artist, student, you are anointed. We want to bless you. We want, we want to remind you that you are a missionary sent by God to, bear, to uh, bear witness to God's love and truth in those spheres that God has placed you in. And it's a very, very powerful time to kind of remind ourselves, like I said a few weeks ago, that our work is sacred to God, that, the, that it's not just an issue of, you know, some people have a ministry and the rest of people have work. We all have ministry. It just takes on different, uh, it takes on different shapes and different uh, contours. And so um, I'd really encourage you to uh, try and be around for that because I always find that's a really powerful time to see people coming together and saying, yeah, God, would you use me in my role as a carpenter this year? Would you use me in my role as a stay-at-home parent? Would you use me in my role as a student transitioning into, you know, maybe a new job? Whatever it is. So I just wanted to give you a heads up about that. Okay, today's text is Psalm 18, verses 1 to 19. We're not going to look at the whole psalm, but we're going to look at kind of the first movement of Psalm 18. This is our second last series through the psalms. I'm going to be kind of finishing our series, Sound and Vision, next Sunday. And I hope it's been an interesting journey for you. I have really enjoyed learning about the psalms, having them challenge me. They really have always been this book that uh, first uh, Israel and, and Hebrew people and then Christians have come back to to get vision for what it means to live out a robust relationship with God in a genuine relationship with God, in an authentic relationship with God. And that's happened through sound, through the arts. These, these are uh, predominantly poetic songs that were sung together and people were challenged in their faith and given new vision for both their life and the life of what it means to be the people of God as they kind of let these songs become part of themselves and, and kind of sang these songs into their bones and into their hearts. So Psalm 18, verses 1 to 19. Again, this is one of the psalms where there is a bit of an um, introduction. At, at the very start, it tells you the context. It says, this is the psalm of David, who's a servant of the Lord. He sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. That happens in 1 Samuel 23. Make a long story short, Saul is king in, in Israel, but David's been anointed to be the next king. Saul, because of all kinds of dynamics in his life, um, and a refusal to be honest with God about certain things in his own heart, has grown envious of David, jealous of David. He's angry at David um, because as the newly anointed one, even though Saul is king, David seems to be getting, building kind of more and more relational momentum, spiritual momentum. People are, you know, people are celebrating Saul, but they're really celebrating David. And so Saul eventually becomes murderous. He, he wants to destroy and kill David. And there's several times where he does this, but the one that David's referring to is in uh, 1 Samuel 23. David is, uh, he, he is um, escaped. He's run away from, uh, from Jerusalem. He's gone into the desert. Saul has armies chasing him. They're trying to figure out where he is. And, and it's kind of a cat and mouse game of on the run in the, in the wilderness. And so Psalm 18 is the song that David writes after he gets saved and rescued from um, Saul and his army. And David's looking back on what God has done, and this is the song that he writes to God. 
I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness. Oh, where are we? Yeah. We made, he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The, vo the voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy with great bolts of lightning. He routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a spacious place, and he rescued me because he delighted in me. What I did this week is I kind of just read through the text a number of times, just prayed about it, and just kind of seeing what popped out. And I just, um, I'm not going to kind of go through it sequentially. I just want to highlight a few key reflections that kind of grabbed me out of the text. The first one that I wanted to highlight, which is kind of hidden in plain sight, I want to make sure it's, <laughs> you see it, because uh, it, it's, it's so much the theme that you can almost miss it sometimes. Uh, you can miss the forest for the trees, is that David is celebrating the fact that God rescued him, that God rescues. David finds himself, he says in verse 16, he says, I was in deep waters. And that's a metaphor that's very, very important, because Jewish people were not seafaring people. They, they fished off the shorelines, but they didn't go into deep waters. Deep waters was a metaphor to a, to a Jewish mind of death and destruction, of chaos. Um, there, was a, there was kind of um, a sense in which deep waters represented kind of the forces of evil. The Jewish people understood that it was just water, but it was symbolic of, of evil and anti-God and anti-life. And so when David says, I was in deep waters, that meant something that was much more threatening to him than it would even for, for most of us. That's his way of saying, I was at a dead end. Like my life was forfeit. If a Jewish first person finds themselves in deep waters, they're not thinking, hmm, how do I get out of this? They're just thinking, this is just the end. I'm going to die. I don't know how to swim. My craft is not capable of withstanding this kind of storm, 
and these kind of waves. So deep water is a death sentence. This is just game over. And David says, this is where I was. It's a metaphor for being in a place of chaos, a place that's going to overwhelm you. And most importantly, it's a metaphor for being in a place that you can't get yourself out of. If you're in deep waters, biblically speaking, to a Jewish mind, you are helpless. You are functionally speaking, in your own resources, you're hopeless. You don't have the resources to troubleshoot how you're going to get yourself out of deep waters. Deep waters is the end of the line. It's an expression of hopelessness. And I say that because pastorally, I kind of assume, and some of my experience has taught me, about 5 to 10% of people who are kind of sitting here on a Sunday morning are in some deep water. In, maybe not in their whole life, but in some area of their life. Um, it could be financial. It could be relational. It could be just a sense of inner turmoil, being overwhelmed on some kind of psychological or spiritual level. It could be emotional. But we deal with deep waters all the time. And I understand that on any given Sunday, I'm speaking to people who, are, who find themselves in deep waters. And so if you find yourself in deep water this morning or someone you love and care about very deeply, you know they're going through something, um, I really hope this message is an encouragement and a challenge to you. Because um, the, the thrust of the message is not the focus on the fact that there are deep waters in life and they are insurmountable. The focus is on the fact that God rescues out of deep waters. And God is a rescuing God. You can't actually understand God, who God is. You can't really even understand very well the Bible if you don't understand it as a huge story of God's ongoing rescue. And so understanding that God rescues and God rescues people out of deep water is very important. And this is a story about how God did rescue David out of deep water and how God wants to rescue you out of the deep water that you find yourself in. It's interesting to look at how David's rescue gets initiated, what starts it. Um, because David says that I cried out to the Lord. He says, I cried out to the Lord and he heard me. And I was reading a lot of commentaries uh, this week on this dynamic, and, and a lot of people said, don't miss this. This is a really short, quick thing. It's one of the only things that David kind of said, this is what I did. This is kind of <laughs> how I contributed to my rescue. I just cried out to God. But the commentators say, don't miss this. Because that is the first step of being rescued in your life. There are a lot of things that God cannot rescue you out of unless you ask and cry out for help because that would be forcing his will upon your will. And God loves you and God wants to rescue you, but God, ought, God cannot force you to be rescued by him. You have to call out to him. You have to, you have to let him know that you want to be rescued. David prays and he cries out to God for help. And uh, Don Carson, in the New Bible Commentary, he says this. He says, the whole purpose of that line, and really the whole purpose of 1 to 19, this, the whole text that we're looking at, is that we might catch a vision of the sovereign power of God that's waiting to be triggered by prayer. But, when we, but the, the challenge of the text, the indirect challenge is, David might not have been rescued had he not cried out to God. So the first step when we find ourselves in deep water is to cry out to God, is to admit, I, I can't do this. 
I'm in deep water. I'm, I'm going to stop trying to save myself, think my way out of it, behave my way out of it, whatever it is. I just need your help, God. That's a hugely important step. Another thing I noticed about this um, psalm is the shape of God's rescue, kind of um, what it shows us about God. In verse 19, um, David says, he brought me into a spacious place, deep waters to a spacious place. And that's really, really important because the movement in Scripture that God always wants to do in and through his people and in and through your life is he wants to bring you from a place where you feel constricted and confined and oppressed and held down and held back. And what he wants to do is he wants to bring you into a space where you can breathe. And you're not, you're not, um, you're no longer in this confined space of spiritual or physical or emotional or financial claustrophobia. You now have space. And the word in Hebrew for salvation has this connotation to it of moving from a place of confinement to a place of openness. So when we talk about God saving us, God saves us from spaces that are tight and that are awkward and that are hard. And he, um, he saves us into places where it's kind of like, oh, I can kind of get my, my footing and I can breathe again and I can kind of, oh, I can kind of get recalibrated to who I am and who he is and the way that I'm supposed to live. And that's very important to understand because skeptics, people who are suspicious of Christianity, who are suspicious of religion maybe in general, but specifically Christianity, they have this completely backwards. The language that they will use, the presumption they're working on is following God and doing what God wants will confine you. Following God, God's commands, seeking obedience, kind of looking to this book to what you should do and stuff, that's, the, that's confinement. That's the thing that's going to push you down and oppress you and hold you back. And if you just start doing your own thing, and they might even say, yes, even, you know, that means being sinful, means being prideful, you being your own God, whatever. That's the path to freedom. That's the path to a spacious place. When you can forget about all the ways that God is trying to confine you, and you can just live the life that you want to live. That's freedom. That's release. That's liberation. That is the secular vision of salvation. Let go of, don't worry about all this stuff. You live life as you see fit in your own life, in your own life, in your own eyes. That is the root of genuine freedom. And this psalm and the rest of scripture just tells the complete opposite story. When, when Christians, when people have gone down that road, the end result is always the same. It's always more and more confinement. When we walk away from God, when we fail to do what he says, when we says, when we treat commandments like suggestions, and then we just kind of do our own thing, we don't experience increasing spaciousness in our life. We experience increasing confinement. Maybe not initially. Maybe the rush of adrenaline of, oh, it kind of feels good to be able to do whatever I want. That kicks in initially. But over time, months, years go by, and your marriage isn't more spacious. Your financial situation is not more spacious. Your emotional sense of uh, centered groundedness, purpose, meaning, that, that's not more space. That's confined. Those things get strangled out. Because the witness of Scripture is that sin is a power, and sin as a power confines and restricts your life. And it confines and restricts the potential of your life, of the communities that you're involved in. And so when God rescues, this is why it's so foolish to resist obedience in your own life, to resist 
having God challenge you in certain areas to resist letting go of this secret sin or this pattern that you're kind of like, I kind of feel like that brings me a lot of life. God is like, no, it only appears like that. That's the illusion. It's not. It's confining you. If you let go of this and obey me in these things and move forward into here, I can bring you into a spacious place. That's what I want. I don't want you living in a way that is unnecessarily confined. I want you to experience genuine truth and freedom which is a confinement of sorts. You will be confined. My commands will confine you, but they're like a door through which you move into a, a, a bigger space. Again, that, um, kind of that word picture of C.S. Lewis. He says, that's why Christianity, it looks like a very small house on the outside. You look at Christianity on the outside and you think, Man, that's really confining. I don't think I could ever live. I don't feel like I would have the space to live in that kind of system in a way. There's a lot of rules. It seems like there's a lot of like do's and don'ts and a lot of like follow Jesus and obedience and oof. But then when you go into the house and you meet the owner of the house, you're like, oh, this is super spacious. This is way bigger in here than it looks like from the outside. This is awesome. But sin is the, sin is the opposite. Sin looks spacious from the outside. Then you get inside of it and you're like, this is not at all what it looked like on the outside. Doing, it, it seemed like if I go down this path, it's going to deliver everything that I wanted, but it, but it doesn't. I, I thought about um, Ashley Madison, the affair facilitation site that's kind of in the news, right? Like their tagline, life is short, have an affair, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the ultimate encapsulation of that idea that like the idea that whether it's religiously grounded or just out of some sense of nobility, mono, uh, monogamous, faithful, you know, creatively, Creatively, faithfully, dynamically pouring your sexual energy into your spouse. Really? Like life's short. Don't confine yourself to that. Have an affair. Have openness. Experience freedom. But we know biblically, and we know from stories, and we know from uh, some of the stories coming out of, of, of kind of the hack and what's happening to people as, as those truths get told, those people are not saying, wow, that really helped bring me into a spacious place. I'm just, I'm just, I'm living the abundant life that, you know, Jesus promised and the, and, the, and the Bible promised, but I always knew it was false and this was the path to it. Sin always confines us. It tempts us by whispering, this is the way I can lead you into a spacious place. Did God really say this? Did God really say don't eat? God's just trying to hold you back. If you listen to me, I'll bring you, you'll become like God. I'll open up new spaciousness and potentiality within your life. But what, what do Adam and Eve get? They just get more confinement. Shame, they're held down, they're held back, they're oppressed, they, they are alienated from God, they're alienated from each other. God is a God who rescues because he wants to take us away from that confinement. The ultimate picture, maybe not the ultimate, the, the penultimate picture of salvation in the Old Testament, which is Israel being delivered, shows us everything we need to know about God. They were slaves. God said, I don't want you to be slaves. I want you to be a nation. I'm going to release you from confinement and slavery into being a people and a nation that is free to worship me. Not just free to right, do what you want, right? That, that's, a, that's a great thing in the Ten Commandments movie where you have Charlton Heston and he says half the verse, right? Like, let my people go, uh, right? And it's like, let my people go. And it's like, there's the other half of the verse that they may go into the desert and worship me. So God, there is no, there's no such thing in life as no human being gets to live without confinements. No human being gets to live without restrictions. What God is saying is mine are the only restrictions that will lead to, to more and more life. 
Sin will restrict in a way that takes away from life. It will steal, it will kill, it will, it will destroy. My restrictions, they, they, they are a yoke of sorts, but they actually lead to greater freedom. Uh, verse 19, yeah, I love that line where, where David is talking about that God brought him to a spacious place, and he says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. And that's so important, too. God rescues people because God loves people. He delights in people. Like, that is just the, the, that is the fuel of God's rescue. God rescues people because they're precious to him. Scripture is this huge story of a God who's continually working in all kinds of ways, with all kinds of forbearance and patience to rescue people out of deep water. And often when you read the stories of Scripture, and when you read them, not through, especially in the Old Testament, not through the lens of like, wow, these are heroes of faith, but these are very, very broken people who God used. Often, even some of these great heroes of the faith that we might look to, they often lived a good portion of their lives resisting God's rescue or living with their finger turned up in God's face. Thanks, but no thanks. I can handle this. I can do it on my own. And yet, God is still faithful. God still is pursuing. God is still wooing. God is still working. God is still self-sacrificially forgiving. God is still sending prophets. He, he just doesn't stop. Why? why? Why doesn't he stop caring? He has lots of justification to. Why, why doesn't God say, like, honestly, like, there's, there's like a, a second chance and a third chance, and then there's just like chance a million, and like, you've just, you've made your bed and you're going to lie in it. Like, why did, like, if you read the momentum of the Old Testament, it kind of does feel like that's where it should logically go. God's saying, I can't really do any more than I've done. So that's it. I'm just going to completely give you over to the power and the penalty of sin. But God doesn't. He just keeps pursuing because he loves us, because he delights in us, and because he sees people in these confined places of self-destructive behavior or other destructive behavior and he's like, that's not what I want for you. That's not what I want for the world. That's not what I want for your church. That's not what I want for your nation. That's not what I want for your family and for your marriage. And so God keeps fighting and he keeps sending out different, and keeps initiating rescue in our lives because he loves us. The early Christians were struggling with trying to understand the fact that, well, before Jesus ascended, he said, I'm going to come back. And they had no reason to think that it was going to be a long time. But, you know, two, three decades pass. And the church is growing and things are happening and people are being saved and God's clearly at work in the world. But, like, Jesus has not come back. It's been a long time. And so they would ask some of the early Christian leaders, like, why, why hasn't Jesus come back to, like, set things right, do a final judgment, and then God's people can be with him forever? Like, what's, why is he slow to kind of follow through on what he said he was going to do. And Peter writes to the church, and he says, oh, the Lord is not slow to keep his promise. As some of you understand slowness, it's instead he's patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. God is just letting history unfold as long as it possibly can so that there can be as much rescue as possible, so that if maybe by one more day, one more voice will cry out to God, he just, he's, he's, he's patient. He's not, he's not in a hurry to exact his judgment. He, he, he's, he's giving as much swath as he can 
so that rescue can happen. And I think that speaks so powerfully to God's heart. Uh, one of the last things that I hadn't noticed before, this is a super weird slash interesting uh, dynamic in this passage, is that God's supernatural rescue often looks very natural. Or you could substitute the word instead of natural, just coincidental. Um, I'm going to read you again the language that David uses in this psalm to describe what happened, how and when God rescued him. This is what David says. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountain shook. They trembled because he, God, was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstorms, hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. This great moment of rescue that David describes is recorded in another part of the Bible. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Verses 26 to 29. David's on the run from Saul. Saul's about to get him. David thinks it's over. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Saul was going along one side of the mountain. David and his men were going on the other, hurrying to get away from Saul. But as Saul and his men and his forces were closing in on David, and his men were about to capture them, a messenger comes up to Saul, says, "Uh, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land back in Israel. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. And that is why this place is called Salah Hamalathkoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Little bit of a disparity between the two accounts. One is this mighty, supernatural, active, just, you know, heaven-tearing, earth-shaking rescue. And in the historical account, it kind of just looked like a really fortunate turn of events. Where at the last second, a messenger comes up and says, Saul, you, don't worry about David. We have bigger fish to fry. Philistines are raiding. We've got to get all these guys back. Otherwise, Israel's going to get routed. And they break it off. So what is it? Is it actually a heaven-rending, earth-shaking, momentous rescue from the Lord Almighty? Or is it a seemingly coincidental interruption on account of a bunch of raiding Philistines? Yes. The answer is yes, it's it's both. Sometimes, and I think often, God's supernatural rescue in our lives, at the first glance, it looks very natural. It looks very kind of coincidental or explainable. It doesn't seem overwhelmingly obvious that God had his hand in it. It was just, it was going in this direction and all of a sudden something turned and like, whoa, we were okay. That's that's great. But through the eyes of faith, as David takes time to reflect on what happened and pray about it, David's like, 
No, that it wasn't just a fortunate kind of turn of events. It wasn't just, and it wasn't even just like a God incidence, not a coincidence. This was the Almighty God delivering his anointed king in a way that was astounding and powerful and amazing. And I think that to me is important. I reflected on that this week and I thought, how often do I take time to just reflect on moments of my life where on the ground level, things just kind of seem to work out. But maybe if I prayed about it, God would give me this impression, right? God would show me that like, actually that was a bigger rescue in that moment than you maybe first understood or thought. That looked like just a friend calling you when you needed it. It was more than that though. That looks like a job showing up when it felt kind of hopeless and it just looked like, oh, some connections happen and then something comes in front of you. It was more than that though. It looks like there was a shift in someone's heart and something changed and, oh, couldn't really see why, but now, hey, things are kind of like better now. We've been able to talk through stuff. But there was a huge, massive supernatural rescue taking place behind the scenes. Don Carson again. He says, in every circumstance, the mightiness of God was at work on David's behalf, even though God's divine glory was concealed. And so even when life seems kind of humdrum, the supernatural presence of God is there. And David took refuge in the cave, cave of Adullam and then the rocks of the wild goats. But in hindsight, he says, the Lord was my refuge. The Lord protected me. Yes, the Lord protected him, concealing his glory to be sure. But behind the dark veil of circumstances, God was reigning from his throne in the interests of his servant. And sometimes as Christians, we need to prayerfully reflect and say, God, would you show me the ways that you have rescued me that I probably just haven't honestly even been thankful for? It was kind of like, oh, glad that worked out. Kind of thanks, God, little flare prayer, but not a real sense. We wouldn't stop to actually write a song about it because it just looked like a little thing that happened. And we're thankful, but we're not like capital T thankful. But this scripture forces me to rethink through a lot of things that I've walked through where I, I would say God definitely had his hand in that situation and say, no, maybe it's okay to say, in some sense, God rendered the heavens. God got on the chair and he came to my defense. He helped me through. He rescued me from a situation that was going to be a dead-end situation. When we look back on our journey, on our life, what do we see? Do we see a powerful God powerfully at work through the circumstances of our life? Or do we look at things just as they appear on the surface and, um, and we're, we're thankful, but we're never really like worship, I give my life to you thankful because God's capital R rescue just kind of seems like a little R rescue. It's like a little rescue. So we're a little thankful. Thanks, God. Appreciate it. And then we go on living our life. But when we understand that it's God's capital R rescue, it's very hard to say thanks for that life transforming rescue. I'll just continue living my life. It's, it actually becomes much more obvious why you would have to give your life over to God completely. Because if God hadn't rescued me, my life was forfeit. So I owe him in one sense a life debt. His, his rescue has done everything for me. I want to touch on something that I think is really important. I just felt like this was kept coming, a little voice in my head as I was praying and preparing. Um, there might be people here who, because of what you're going through or what you have walked through or what you've seen other people walk through, 
your pushback to me, you'd, you'd, if you could, you could stand up and say, time out a second, I have a question. What about the circumstances in which God doesn't rescue? What about the times where I've called out to God and he hasn't actually rescued? Or I called out to God on behalf of a friend going through this and they weren't rescued. They didn't experience this amazing deliverance. They're, they're still in their situation. Or the illness claimed their life. And what do we do there? You've got to be careful, Jeff, not to talk about God as if God always rescues. And God's just this rescuing God. And it's just as easy as calling out to God and then God will do it. And I want to honor that place of pain, that place of frustration, that place of confusion, that place of hurt um, by acknowledging that, yes, again, on the surface, sometimes it does appear that God has not rescued us or someone else out of a situation. This is a whole series, so I'm not going to try and solve theodicy and the goodness of God in the midst of suffering in two minutes. But in the context of this message, I think something is important. Sometimes God will not deliver you out of something, but he will deliver you through something. And that's a little different because sometimes, well, I'll speak for myself. I often want God to deliver me out of something immediately. (laughs) Take me immediately out of this and then like just instant relief and then set me back on, in a spacious place and that'd be awesome. That's what I want. That's what I'm expecting from God's rescue. And God sometimes will absolutely do that. But there are other times where God says, I'm gonna rescue you through this. I'm gonna, walk you, I'm gonna move you through this, but there's not gonna be an immediate, like things are done. Um, there have been situations in my life where God has not, where I believe God has delivered me and rescued me through them but not out of them immediately. You know, Psalm 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't really worry about it because you're going to snatch me out of there. That's not what it says. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not afraid because you're with me. You're going to walk with me through this valley. Sometimes God takes us out of the valley. Sometimes God delivers us by moving us through the valley. And I think that's important. And, and, and the Bible is very honest in some sense in saying, yeah, on that superficial level of here are my circumstances, does God always take even his people out of hard circumstances? The Bible is very honest in saying, no. Hebrews 11 says, when, when the writer of Hebrews is looking back in the Old Testament, he says, Someone, some women, some widows received back their dead. Some, some, some people got even rescued from back, back from death and gave widows back their husbands. They were raised again to new life. And there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. There's no rescue for them. Some were sawed in two. That's an allusion to kind of church history that believes that the prophet Isaiah eventually came to have his end, being sawn in two. They were killed by the sword, no rescue for them, no 11th hour being pulled up out of deep waters. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were economically destitute. They were persecuted. They were mistreated. This world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. Since God had planned something better 
for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. If you're a Christian and you, are, you have called out to God, you are calling out to God, and it doesn't feel like rescue is coming. You feel like you're in deep waters, and it's not because of your own sinfulness or stupidity where you just keep, God is actually rescuing you, rescuing you and you just keep jumping back into the same deep waters. You just don't feel like the rescue is actually coming. I want to say biblically, you know, don't lose hope. Keep crying out to God. Um, but I also want to be honest and say, I can't tell you why things are playing out the way they are in your life. One of the really bittersweet things about the book of Job, which is the study on how do we understand the relationship between a good God and evil and suffering in the world, Job is never told why he suffers. He's never told. Read the whole thing. You can go to the last chapter. Job never finds out. God never explains to him. You know, this is why I was doing it, Job. Job just has to, God just carries Job through it. And then at the end, God gives Job a bigger revelation of himself. Job's like, why, why, why? God's like, me, me, me. This is who I am. And that was enough for Job. So I can't tell you why things are happening the way they are. But scripture seems to indicate that God, at the most basic level, wants to rescue people from sinful, harmful, hurtful, hurtful situations. But that rescue doesn't always come in the way that we think it should come. And none of us can really know the reasons why that is, why it happens over here and it doesn't happen over here, but we can know the reasons that, that it couldn't be. It couldn't be that God doesn't rescue because God doesn't care. Because Scripture just bears evidence in all kinds of ways that God is not indifferent towards us, he's not incompetent, he loves us, he wants to rescue. He wants to take people who are experiencing the cords of death wrapping around them and giving them new life and freedom. And so if he doesn't, then I think Hebrews 11 says it's because God has something bigger planned. There's a larger rescue that has to take place that wouldn't be able to happen if God were to rescue right here. So if at the age of nine, if God had rescued me from no more sight complications, done. All my genetic conditions that predispose me to be legally blind, by the, certainly by the time I'm a teenager, God's just going to completely just eradicate the whole thing. There are things in my life that I see now, greater rescues in and through me, um, learning things about life and about what it means to follow Jesus that I couldn't have been prepared for had God rescued me here. It's not that God didn't want to, but God says there's a greater rescue I want to institute in and through your life and in and through you. And so God doesn't just deliver me out of my circumstances right here. He walks with me through them and delivers me through my circumstances so that now I can say, God has rescued me, but not in the way that I thought, but in a way that I'm more thankful for. I can genuinely say that. I am very glad God did not just answer the prayers of an 11 or 12-year-old boy. He said, I'm scared of going blind. Can you just take this whole thing away from me? And that means when we cry out to God and rescue comes, we praise God. We say, thank you, God. And we write songs and we write poetry and we paint and we express ourselves beyond just like, oh, thanks, God. But when rescue doesn't come, we have the same reaction. We should still praise God. Because if rescue isn't coming and you are his child, 
that means he has something better planned. There's a bigger rescue happening. Now, I know that that takes a lot of faith muscles to kind of lean into when you're in those moments of deep water. But I love the line from 1 Peter 4.19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their creator and continue to do good. If you call out to God and say, I don't want to have the suffering anymore, and there's silence, and there's not an immediate on-the-surface rescue, Peter's like, don't say, well, fine then. I'm just, I'm just going to be obstinate and stubborn, and I'm not going to give God what he wants until he gives me what I want. The Bible says, no, then you're not serving God out of a, a true heart. You're just serving God to get what you think you need. So even when rescue doesn't come, continue to faithfully serve and glorify God and, and do good. Continue to press into your faith. But I do, I do want to end by saying, I think for the Christian, it's not theologically accurate. It's not right to talk about, to um, use the language that like sometimes God doesn't rescue. Because God is always in the process of rescuing. It's just not necessarily in the way that we think. As a Christian, it, it's not wise. I've tried to catch myself when I say, well, I feel like God didn't rescue me out of the situation or hasn't rescued me yet or rescue isn't coming. Because the point of all the scripture is that we have been rescued by a greater rescue. See, Psalm 18 is a psalm that David uses to celebrate this God who rescues him from this particularly uh, life-threatening situation. But Psalm 18 points to a greater rescue. I'm not keeping up with my slides, am I? Thanks, Marvin. <laughs> this happened the other week. I think you guys have to take care of my slides because when I get preaching, it's, it's gone. I, I can't think about this little thing. There is a greater rescue that Psalm 18 points to. And if you think about it from David's perspective, what would be a greater rescue than I'm about to be killed by my enemy who wants me dead, I'm on the run, and they're about to overtake me, and God saves me from that. God literally saves my life. He saves my life. Not in a metaphorical sense, in the most literal sense possible. That's a pretty great rescue. I would call that a capital G great rescue. But Psalm 18 says actually there's a greater rescue, and it points to it. Because a greater rescue than just having someone save your life would be a rescue from the power and penalty of sin itself. That would be a greater rescue. Because if you could be liberated from the penalty of sin, which is alienation from God, alienation from yourself, alienation from other people, from creation, if you could be liberated from the power of sin, that constraining, confining, oppressive force in your life that is holding you down and pulling you back, that would be a sweeter and more glorious rescue than simply escaping a situation with your life intact. And that's why John Stott says the gospel at a fundamental level is a rescue. To understand the gospel is to understand that it is a rescue. The gospel is an emancipation from the ultimate bondage. And if you don't understand that, then very little in Christianity will make sense to you. It just does not compute if you do not understand that the heart of Christianity is a capital R rescue. Nothing Jesus calls you to do and to become will make sense to you. Why would you worship Jesus? Why would you give him your life? Why give 10% of your income to his kingdom? Why would you serve sacrificially and forward other people's agenda and his agenda before your own agenda? Why love? Why would you forgive your enemies? Why not take up the sword and pursue vengeance? Why not? Uh, why pray? Why, why read your Bible? I mean, none of those things make sense unless you understand 
you have been rescued from the power of sin and death into an entirely new kind of life under a new confinement of a new king, but this is a king and this is a confinement that leads you into an entirely new kind of freedom. See, the good news of Christianity, the gospel of Christianity, can't really be grasped unless you first understand the bad news, which is that every human being, whether they're conscious of it or not, are in spiritual deep waters. They are spiritually hopeless. They're in a spiritual situation where they can't think, uh, moralize, behave, um, strategize their way out of separation from God and getting out from under the power and penalty of sin. That you're completely cut off from the kind of life you were created for, life with God and integrated with uh, thriving relationships, a a strong sense of personal identity, a strong sense of mission into the world, and that, like the Bible says, you're actually dead in your sins. You're in deep water. You're actually hopeless. There's not going to be any more. This is the end of the line for you, spiritually speaking. You can't meaningfully help yourself. You are in desperate need of rescue. But that rescue is available to you because of what happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it's actually the resurrection that speaks most powerfully to the fact that the power and penalty of sin and death has been conquered and that those in Christ can step into a life where the power and penalty of sin no longer holds sway over them. And now those in him will one day be resurrected to new life and a new heavens and a new earth where sin is no more, only life and love and goodness and God's glory permeating everything. And that is a rescue that anybody can have. That's a central idea of Christianity. That is a rescue that anybody can have if they turn to Jesus. And if they cry out to Jesus and say, I'm in deep waters. Maybe to people on the outside, I kind of have my stuff together, but I know I'm in deep waters and I recognize that and I need you to rescue me out of this pit. I need you to rescue me out of this situation. I want to give you my life. And that is the rescue you can have if you ask Jesus for his forgiveness and place him as the ruler of your life and get off that throne yourself. And see, that's the rescue that every Christian can be assured of even when we find ourselves not being immediately rescued. I have watched and, and know of Christians moving seemingly inevitably towards death because of an illness. Why isn't God rescuing them right away? We're not sure. But what we do know is that even if he doesn't rescue them right away, they're headed towards a better resurrection. Because at the moment of death, Jesus said, you'll, you'll just be with me. Even if you die, you will live. You won't, you won't actually experience death. I'm delivering you through this. Not out of it, maybe, but through it such that you will never experience death. That is an amazing rescue. And Psalm 18 gives us a really unique window into how that rescue was, how it was established. That rescue, that ultimate rescue was established through a king that was greater than David, an anointed one who was greater than David, who for Israel was the anointed one, an anointed one who faced a greater enemy a greater enemy than Saul, an enemy that was too strong for us. And using the words of this psalm, I want you to think about that king. I want you to think about a king who on the cross, the cords of death entangled him. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed him. The cords of the grave coiled around him. The snares of death confronted him. In his distress, he cried to the Lord. 
he cried to his God for help. And from his temple, God heard his voice, and this man's cry came to God's ear. And the earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook, and they trembled because God was angry, and smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. But there was no rescue for that king. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no rescue for that king. On the cross, Jesus was not delivered. He was not rescued. So that through his forsakenness, we could be found. Through his abandonment, we could be brought in. Why would Jesus do that? Knowingly, consciously, intentionally. Because the Lord delights in you. And the thought of an eternity with you being separated from him drove him to say, this is the only way I'll do it. This is the only way I will do it. And he did it. The gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed than we can ever dare believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And when we give our lives to Jesus, he leads us into a new life that is so spacious and so different in kind than life is normal. He calls it, he says, the, be the best metaphor you could use is it's like being born again. It's an entirely new lease on life as the Spirit of God comes in, regenerates your heart, and sets you on a new path. And so whether you find yourself this morning in the deep waters of circumstances in your life that are threatening to overwhelm you, or deep waters of inner realities that you feel like are crushing you, my encouragement to you, believer or not, would be to follow in David's footsteps. Call out to God. Just call out to God because he can rescue you and he delights in you and that's why he will. Let's pray. God, you are a God who rescues. And I pray that this week we would take time to reflect on our lives and to not dismiss those moments where it just seems like there's little turns of fate here or there, but that you would somehow show us the power and the glory of the rescue that you were orchestrating in that moment that we were maybe completely blind to in the moment, we were thankful for, but give us eyes to see your rescue and give us eyes to see the glory of your ultimate rescue, of this king who comes and forgoes rescue so that we can experience it. What a king, God. Help us to live more faithfully for you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.